Amen. So we have made it to Chronicles 13, 14, and 15 tonight. Our, uh, our title is Priestly Prescriptions, and um, we sure are glad you're here. All right, tonight we're going to review in only two slides. Amen. Right. Two. Wow. I think we've been building up kind of a repetition here. So I want to show you a very familiar slide. This is about the time span of the books of Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, First and Second Samuel. On the very bottom, you see Chronicles and the time that it spans. First Chronicles spans David's life. Second Chronicles spans Solomon all the way to the Babylonian exile. Remember that those two books are one book. So from David to Babylonian exile. Second Chronicles is primarily about the southern kingdom of Judah, the Davidic dynasty. And Second Chronicles was written after the Babylonian exile. So that tells you something about the recording process of the promises of God here. I want to show you another slide to show you the summary of the two kingdoms. So we want you to remember the objective or the agenda, if you will, of the chronicle. In his discussions, we're overlapping many things that First and Second Samuel and Kings have already covered, as Justin showed you. But if you remember, we have 19 kings that are the northern kingdoms, seven different dynasties that compose those 19 kings. We have the Syrian captivity in 721. But the southern kingdom, the one that the chronicler wants to highlight, wants you to pay attention to, is 20 kings over 370 years and one dynasty. Yeah, yeah. That dynasty is the Davidic. Hallelujah. As we get into some nitty-gritty details tonight, remember that the chronicler is pointing to the Davidic dynasty because of what amen. will come out of it. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. So as we pick up in the narrative tonight, King David has been anointed, he has experienced his coronation, all of Israel is under his control. His troops are ready, his troops are willing. Amen. Amen. Tonight our focus is going to grow. It's going to grow from the anointed of the Lord into the ark of the Lord. And that's important because in the coming weeks, our focus will continue to grow from the ark of the Lord to the covenant of the Lord. And the book will culminate with the temple of the Lord. Amen. It was laid out that way on purpose. We didn't design that. The man who compiled this work, he designed it that way. He's taking us somewhere. He actually has taken us from Adam all the way through all of Israel's troubles to show back up at a restored temple. That's the point of the book. We're going to jump into the text tonight. As always, my sweet wife is going to read 13, 14, and 15. And uh, we all look forward to uh, the genealogies in it. Yes, we do. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if the, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands. 
to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all of the Israelites from Shihor River in Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from kiriath Jerim. David and all the Israelites went with him to Balaam of Judah, kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of the ark of God, the Lord, the ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadad's house onto a new cart with Uzzah and Ohio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, with leaders, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to study the ark. Because the oxen stumbled, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Now Haram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs, stonemasons, and carpenters to build a palace for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. In Jerusalem, David took more wives and became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him there. Here we go. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elphet, Nogog, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Beliad, and Eliphet. Yeah. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all of Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of God, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, I will hand them over to you. So David and his men went up from Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, God has broken out against my enemies by my hand. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines had abandoned their gods there, and David gave orders to burn them in the fire. Amen. Once more, the Philistines raided the valley. So David inquired of God again, and God answered him, Do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in the front of the balsam tree. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move out to battle, because that will mean that God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army, all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made the nations fear him. After David had constructed building for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, 
Because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all of Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place where he had prepared for it. He called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. From the descendants of Kohath, Uriel the leader and 120 relatives. From the descendants of Moriah, Asaiah the leader and 220 relatives. From the descendants of Gershon, Joel, the leader, and 130 relatives. From the descendants of Eliphazon, Shemaiah, the leader, and 200 relatives. From the descendants of Hebron, Eliel, the leader, and 80 relatives. From the descendants of Uzel, Uzael, Abimadad, the leader, and 112 relatives. Then David summoned Zadok and Abathar, the priest, and Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amimadad, the Levites. He said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families, and you and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded. With the word of the Lord. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to joyfully to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the Levites appointed Heman, son of Joel, from his brothers Asaph, son of Berkiah, and from their brothers the Merites, Ethan, son of Cushiah, and with them their brothers next in rank, Zechariah, Jazael, Sheremoth, Jehiel, Unai, Elab, Benaiah, Masiah, Mattathiah, Eliphilu, <laughs> Mekaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. The musicians He-Man, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the bronze cymbals. Zechariah, Azael, Sheremoth, Jahiel, Unai, Eliab, Messiah, and Beniah were to play the lyre according to the Alamoth. And Mattathiah, Elif, Elifelu, Mekina, Obed, Edom, Jael, Azaziah were to play the harps, directing according to Sheminith. Hananiah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing that was responsible because he was skillful at it. Berkiah and Elkanah were to be doorkeepers of the ark. Shebaniah, Joseph Hat, Netanel, Amasiah, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eliezer, the priests, were to blow trumpets before the ark of God. Obed, Edom, and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed, Edom, with rejoicing, because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who carried the ark, and were, and were the singers, and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod, 
So all of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horn and trumpets and of cymbals and of the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Yeah. All right, y'all give Jennifer a hand. Twenty-seven years we've been making her do that, and she will have not only read the word many times all the way through, she will have done it out loud publicly. All right, we're going to jump into verse 1, but before we do, I want to hand out a scripture. Who wants to read? Somebody loud and clear. Yeah. I think Rob is loud and clear. Yeah. Second Samuel 24, verse 9. Before you read that, let's read verse 1. Linton, our faithful reader of the scroll, would you read verse 1 for us? <laughs> David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. The commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Amen. Now, Rob, read what you have. 2 Samuel 24, 9. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. That's a bunch of guys. Yeah. Like 1.3 million guys. Uh, this uh, that we're reading from 2 Samuel 24, 9, it's a little later in our chronology than this moment. But it gives us an idea of what we're talking about. And you need to know that the text in 2 Samuel 24, I'm sorry, in 1 Chronicles, that is a parallel account, 1 Chronicles 21, 6, clearly says that Benjamin and Levi were not counted. So in the 1.3 million, there were actually more. We figure that's more than enough to make up for any differences between the time we're reading right now and the time that we're drawing these numbers from. Well, let's extrapolate a little bit. If there's 1.3 million people, at least, in the army, this means that there were at least 1,300 commanders of thousands that David is conferring with it means that there were at least 13,000 commanders of hundreds. So David is conferring with at least 14,300 commanders regarding what he's about to do in verse 1 alone. That's a bunch, huh? Yeah. Linton, will you get verse 2 for us? He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Mm. So saints, in addition to 14,300 commanders, we have all the territories of Israel, which is undoubtedly numbered in the millions. So if our numbers earlier are from fighting men, this is men that are between 20 and 50 that are able to handle a sword. So you add in wives, you add in children, you add in people that are over 50. The amount that has been brought in is well into the millions. Now, say this with me. In addition to that, he brought in all of the priests. Somebody say, all the priests. All the priests. All the Levites. All the Levites. 14,300 commanders, all of the peoples from all of the territories, all of the priests, all of the Levites. His request was that if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord. 
See, this is our backdrop for everything that's about to happen from here on out. Linton, will you pick up in verse 3 for us? In, uh, is that through 6? 8. 8. Let us bring the ark of our God back to it. For we did not inquire of it. Oh, hold on right there. <laughs> it says in the English, for we did not re- inquire of it. It. Are they inquiring of the ark or are they inquiring of God? God. The Masoretic text says that they didn't inquire of him. They did not inquire of God. Amen. Now continue on, Lenny. During the reign of Saul, the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all the Israelites from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamad to bring the ark of God from kiriath Jerim. David and all the Israelites with him went to Balah of Judah, kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, the ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with mm. songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. Man, now there's a wi- there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, it seemed right to all the people that this should happen. Yeah. The whole assembly agreed to do this. David is inquiring of all of Israel, and it seemed right to all the people. It could not be stressed enough that they were in unity. All of Israel was in unity as they're entering into a huge failure. It could not be stressed enough that their desires were noble. They had noble desires. They wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Is Is that a noble desire? Yes. Of course. It couldn't be stressed enough that there were no recorded objections. We don't see anywhere where someone stands up and says, hey, this is not right. You know? Yeah. A lot of times we, we think we're doing something right just because nobody's, nobody's not telling us that it's wrong. It couldn't be stressed enough that there were no recorded objections. It could not be stressed enough that they celebrated with all their might before God. They were celebrating with all their might. And it doesn't mean that it was right. It could not be stressed enough that the scriptural record would suggest that the movement of the ark to Jerusalem was in fact the will of the Lord. This was the will of God that they do this. God wanted his ark brought to Jerusalem, but what's the problem here? There's a huge problem with all this. Even though they're rejoicing mightily, even though there's no objections by anyone, including the Levites and priests, there's a huge problem. And we're about to get into that. The reason we're stressing this is because it seems right to the people. It's marked by unparalleled unity. It's characterized by noble intentions. It's performed in wholehearted celebration. And it's blatantly wrong. It's carried out in a manner other than the prescribed written word of God. This is an example of a right thing done in a very wrong way. The written scripture takes total, somebody say total, total total precedence over your feelings, what seemed right. Total precedence over your unity, over your noble desires, over your discernment. Remember, there were no recorded 
objections. It takes total precedence even over your celebration in the name of and before the Lord. Disregarding the written word of God in favor of lesser confirmations was a problem then, it's a problem now, and it will undoubtedly be a big problem even in the future. So remember, 14,300 commanders, all of the territories, all of the priests, all of the Levites. Let's consider what the written word of God says about how the ark is to be handled. Who wants to take some scriptures? Jackie, will you get Exodus 25, 14 through 15? Who else? Steve, get Exodus 37, 5. Nolan, get Exodus 40, 20. Bonham, get Numbers 4, 4 through 6. Carlos, will you get Numbers 7, 6 through 9? Cho, will you get Numbers 4, 15? We'll read those and then we'll pick up with a few more. You can start whenever you're ready. Exodus 25, 14 through 15. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. What? Wait, wait. What was that? Carry it. To carry it. Okay. (laughs) The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. The poles are to remain in the ark. Saints, we don't know exactly what they walked up to with the ark. Perhaps the poles have been removed. Perhaps somebody put them somewhere else in the tabernacle. But I kind of suspect that they were staring at the way that God intended it to be moved. And yet we're operating under a different sort of principles. Let's continue on in Exodus. Exodus 37, 5. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. Man, the Torah records that the poles were placed in it for carrying it. This is written in the Peshat, in the Torah, for everyone to see. This is not some sowed, this is not some kind of midrash that you have to glean from. You're about to see how many times it's recorded in the Peshat. What's Exodus 40, verse 20? He took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Mm. Listen, what we've just heard is from Exodus 25, where the ark is designed to have poles, to the next passage in Exodus, which was 37, where the poles were placed in it, to Exodus 40, which is one of the last mentions of the ark, and it clearly has the poles in it. From the first mention of its design in Exodus to its last mention, the poles are expressly prescribed. Who's got numbers four? Numbers four, four through six. This is the work of the Korathites in the tent of meeting. Hold on, hold on. What's our context? This is the work of the Keep reading. The care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and the ark, or the cover, the ark of the testimony with it. Then they are to cover this with hides of sea cows, spread a cloth over the salt blue, a salt blue over that, and put the poles in place. So, more than just it's supposed to be carried with poles. More than just supposed to be carried by Levites. There's a very specific group of Levites that are supposed to carry it. And there's a procedure with the things that they cover over it prior to handling it. Because it is considered one of the holy things. There are many things that we handle, but the ark of God's testimony in our life and in the scripture is one that must be handled with care. Yeah. Who has number seven? Number seven or six. So Moses took the wagons 
Wait, say that again? But to the sons of Kohat, he gave none. Wow. Because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulders. Man, the Gershonites had carts. The Merarites had carts. But the Kohathites were not given carts specifically because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things, like the ark, wow. which is why it had poles. Yeah. You hear how specific this is? Oh, yes. yes. And it's not an obscure mention. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take Numbers 4.15. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and what the camp is ready to do, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. I'm sorry. They must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of you. The written word specifically says that the Kohathites must carry the ark. Must carry. The written word specifically says it must be done with poles on the shoulder. The written word denied them the use of a cart for any reason. In fact, they were not given one and their brothers were. Just to make sure. The written word said they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Saints, how easily do we lay aside what is written in favor of what seems right? What we are collectively unified in? What we felt during worship or during a prayer time? Or what we think we personally discerned? Even Agabus made the error of hearing rightly but drawing the wrong conclusion. Somebody say wrong conclusion. Wrong conclusion. In Acts 21, 10-11, praise God Paul would not be dissuaded from what had already been revealed from heaven. The man heard rightly, but drew the wrong conclusion. Be warned, the Lord will always remain faithful to His written word. I'm going to read to you 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. You may be faithless, but He will not be faithless, and most specifically to what He promised through His word. He does not disown Himself. His word is Himself. That is why we can trust in His promises and that's why we can depend upon Him to stick to exactly what He said. Psalm 33, 4-6. Did we give that out? No. Let's hand out a few passages. Uh, who wants to read? Cody, you read Psalm 33, 4-6. Marlon, you read Deuteronomy 32, 47. Bam, you read Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. Nolan, you take Deuteronomy 13, 9 through 11. Rick, you take Joshua 1, 7 through 9. Southey, you take Isaiah 8, 19 through 20. Let's see. Hayes, you take Proverbs 4, 13. Tisdale, you're going to read John 12, 48. Devlin, you read Luke 24, 45 with all the power that you can muster. And Chris, you read Mark 12, 24. And last one, who wants to read? JJ, you take Revelation 22, 18 through 19, and I lied. 
We have one more. Rob, you take 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 36 through 38. Yeah, call out your scriptures when you read them because that's a lot to write so quickly. So this is on, to- on the topic of the written word. God being faithful to the written word. We just read 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful to His written word, even though we're faith- faithless. So who's got Psalm 33, 4-6? For the word of the Lord is right and true. Say that again. For the word of the Lord is right, right and true. true. Amen. Amen. He is faithful in all He does. Yeah. Who is faithful? The Lord. He, he, he is faithful. The word is faithful. Keep going. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. So we've been talking about this the last couple weeks. The Creator created the heavens as His Word. He is His Word, and His Word is Him, and He made the heavens through His Word. The Word is always right and true, and always faithful to Himself. The Word can never be unfaithful to God, and God can never be unfaithful to His Word. Those two cannot... Be separated. He will always be faithful to his written word. What Even De- if we're unfaithful to it. Yeah. 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 What does Deuteronomy 32, 47 say? Deuteronomy uh, 32, 47. There are not just idle words for you. There are your life. Amen. By then you will live long in the land you will cross into the Jordan to possess. If you don't believe that the word of God is actually your life, Not an addition to your life, not a life coach, not a supplement. But if you don't believe that it's actually your life, ask Uzzah. (laughs) Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Who has that for us? Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. says, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, if the sign... Or wonder of which he had spoken takes place. If it does what? Takes takes place. place. Oh. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death mm. because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God wow. who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Wow. So Saint sets a lot in one little section. Some of you are familiar with it. Others of you, that you may be hearing this or interacting with it for the first time. If this man, who had, with dreams and prophecy, says something that comes to pass, but he advocates anything other than the law that has been given, you are to put him to death. Yeah. And what they're commanded to do is keep his commands and obey him, serve him, hold fast to him, regardless of what you see. The way of the Lord your God, he has commanded you, and these other things are evil that must be purged. Mm-hmm. No amount of visions, dreams, words of knowledge are sufficient to change what His written Word already says. His Word is supreme. 
Can somebody say amen to that in this house? His word is supreme in our lives. No out-of-context scripture, divine discernment, or sensational sign can change what he has already written. Those of you who have been in advanced combat training will remember the concept that miracles and consistency with, with the overall narrative of the word are authentication. But miracles alone are not sufficient. There is the word and his overall narrative that is constantly showing up. And when a sign or a wonder appears that agrees with it, then it's confirmation. But seeing something miraculous, having a vision, having a dream, does not replace the word of God alone in your life. Just to give you an idea of the kind of level of importance you ought to place on Deuteronomy 13, Joseph Smith may have seen an angel. He may have seen golden tablets. It could have been a white salamander that gave him glasses so that he could read it. But it contradicts what came before and must be rejected. Muhammad very well could have been in a cave and had an angel speak to him or choke him or whatever it is he said happened and there had been a miraculous spider web as the Muslims say. But he contradicts what came before so it must be rejected. If you do not grab hold of that concept, you will unwittingly break the word into segments that you think can and cannot be contradicted. And what will happen to you is your theology will veer off course ever so much so that you have more in common with a Muslim or a Mormon than you do with the foundational aspects of God's Word. Who's got Deuteronomy 33, 9-11? He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word mm, and guarded your covenant. Yeah. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Did you catch that kind of attitude that this is speaking of? Yeah. This is about the tribe of Levi. And it's saying, he said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his own brothers, but he did what? He watched over your word Amen. and guarded your covenant. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. Yeah. See, he has that kind of attitude because Levi realized nothing else in his purview mattered but guarding the word because it is your life. Hallelujah. It was not just an addition to Levi's life. It was not just an add-on to get what Levi wanted. This was Levi's life, and he was willing to fight for it. And he was given the responsibility to teach this to Jacob. Think about that for a second. All right? He consulted the Levites. What's Joshua 1, 7 through 9? Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You're to meditate on it day and night. There is no successful endeavor outside of His Word. Even if it would seem to succeed, in the end it's straw that will be burned up. His Word 
reigns supreme. A new idea, a new church model, a new revelation of yours is not sufficient for any real level of success. Who has Isaiah 8, 19 through 20? Whisper and mutter. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Mm-hmm. To the law and to the testimony. Yeah. yeah. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of God. Right. To the law and to the testimony. Amen. Saints, in a day and age where we are surrounded by those who f- profess Christ, that are constantly concerned about some kind of extra biblical experience, all too often we see people seeking a special revelation or seeking a whisper from the Lord while at an altar or in a worship service and blatantly ignoring the Word of God that speaks loud and clear and is not difficult to understand. But we're family. We're brothers in arms working to see the kingdom of God established in this house. How often are you looking for another prophecy at the altar, looking for God to whisper something to you when He's already blatantly and loudly spoke to you out of His Word? To the law and to the testimony. That is where we find our light of dawn. Who has Proverbs 4, 13? Proverbs 4, 13. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. It is literally your life. Ask Uzzah. (laughs) Uzzah learned that lesson pretty quick, didn't he? It is your life. It is your whole man. Soul, strength, and spirit. Look, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, you have nothing Except the word of God that you held on to. That is everything you have in this world. Your possessions are nothing. How well you feel in worship is nothing. How well you hold on to the word is everything that you have. Amen. What's John 12? 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. But Lord... I sought out 14,300 leaders, and they all agree. But Lord, I pulled together every Levite. I got the whole nation, even the priests, and they agree. The word itself is your judge. But Lord, I worshiped and did it with a noble heart. The word is your judge. The word he has already spoken. Yes. What is in his written word is our life and it could become your condemnation if it's not carefully obeyed. Mm. The holistic nature of the word of God is something that we must get down into our souls. Everyone thinks that they understand it, but they don't know how to practically apply it when they're looking at a scripture and they're wrestling with what to do with it. Look at the holistic nature of God. When you're looking at a situation instead of a scripture and you don't know what to do with it, look at the holistic nature of the Word of God and you will find your answer inside of it. The Spirit and the Word work in conjunction. We're going to take Luke 24 and Mark 12 together and consider that. Who has Luke 24? Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. See, at the end of Jesus' ministry, what He desired for His disciples was that their minds might be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to better understand His Word. Yeah, yeah. See, that is what you need. That's yeah. all they needed, and that is what we need. Who has Mark 12, 24? Jesus told them, Are you not deceived because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? Ooh. 
You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You see, the spirit and the word of, of the word of God are one and the same. You can't say that I heard from the spirit something that is contrary to the word of God. They are in perfect unity. They are in perfect unity. They always agree. Your discernment, your sods, your spiritual directions will not and cannot contradict the written word. How much better would charismania be if we understood that principle? Let's go to Revelation 22, verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the, of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now you recognize that from Revelation. But this is not the first warning of its kind. In fact, the entire Bible makes this claim from its beginning to its last warning in Revelation. Because the entire Word of God is one contiguous revelation. It never sets aside what comes before. It never abrogates what comes before. It is one revelation, and there's a simple reason for it. God is not so short-sighted that He had to change His mind. He sees the end from the beginning and later revelation might add something in the sense of clarity to what was said before. But even the Apostle Paul didn't get something new. The Spirit simply opened his mind to what was already there that men in previous generations had not discerned. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 14.36 has a good question for us. Who's going to read it? Through 38. Did the Word of God originate with you? Or are, the only pe- or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. He himself will be ignored. So let's interact with the Word. Did the Word of God inter- originate with you? No. Where did it come from? God. Came from God and hence Word spoke this into existence. Any revelation that the Lord gives you must agree with the larger body of work that is written in His holistic Word of God. His written Word. We don't get to invent a new revelation that contradicts what it already says because it originated from the Creator Himself. It came from Him. We don't get to steer off into a different direction. No amount of joy, no amount of fervency or sowed-based affirmations can ever bypass His written testimony. It doesn't matter how you or I feel about it, whether we're passionate about what we've received or we think the Lord spoke to us. If He has already confirmed something in your life through His Word, you don't get to renegotiate it two months later because you have another soul. Do you find it remarkable then that no Levite, no priest, no Israelite offered a single objection to the proposal to put the Ark of God on a cart? This is His people. Do you find it remarkable? Yes. Yes. When the Levites and the priests go astray, so does the whole nation. Yeah, that's so true. It was their job, their J-O-B, <laughs> their occupation, their full-time employ. Oh, they may have. <laughs> they may have. <laughs> now... When we're talking about their occupation, 
It was their job to make a distinction between the holy and prescribed way and a common earthly expedient way. That was their job. We want to hand out some scriptures on this subject. All right, get your hands up. Who wants to read? Spence, take Leviticus 10, 10 through 11. Caleb, Deuteronomy 17, 18. Assad, you take Deuteronomy 33, 10. Timo, you get Ezekiel 44, 24. Nick Rosales, you take Malachi 2, 7 through 8. Steve Thomas, you're going to take Lamentations 2, 14. Jackie, you're going to take Jeremiah 2, 8. Uh, Bim, you get Matthew 23, 2 through 4, 2 through 3, rather. Uh, see, Brandon, you take 1 Timothy 1, 4 through 7. And that's it. Leviticus 10, 10 through 11. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Now look, it was everybody's job to know what was written in the standard of God's law. Every Israelite was required to know what God commanded for them to live in the community of Israel. But the standard bearers of this principle were the Levites. The Levites were the ones that were supposed to teach the Israelites. So do you find it odd that after consulting all of these Levites, not one of them offered any objection at all? The Levites were the ones that were supposed to object. Let's take Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priests. Wow. So, we tend to think of the king as above everybody. In God's design, he was not. In God's design, the king had to personally write a copy of the scroll that the Levites approved because they were responsible for teaching the king. He had to carry it on his person And the Levites had to verify that he had written it correctly to ensure that they knew what God had prescribed. You're familiar with Ephesians 4. There is a government of God on earth that he designed. No principle that you find in the Newer Testament is not found in the Older Testament. We have priests, we have prophets, we have kings that are designed to work in unity so that God's people might succeed, that they might be kept from sin. Who is Deuteronomy 33, 10? He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and holds on offering on your altar. Saints, what tribe is this about? This is his job, this is his profession, to interact not just with the king, but the whole people so that every member that was called up would know what the word had already stated. Let's do Ezekiel 44. Read verse 23, Timo. Verse 23. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common, the 
show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. Wow, this is the duty of the priests and Levites, to Amen. teach them how to distinguish between unclean and clean. How do they do that? By teaching them what the Word yeah. says. Come on. What is Malachi 2, 7 through 9? You can hold there. When the priesthood fails, what you need to understand is it hastens the failure of others. The church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. If the church treats the Word of God lightly or as an option or as a supplement, then what hope does anybody outside the church have? See, the failure of our nation, it's laid at the feet of the pulpits. And the failure that happens here, as much as you want to ascribe it to David, and he cannot escape some responsibility, the failure starts in the priesthood. That's where it starts. Saints, when you have a nation that is not doing well, when kings are not behaving, the Lord has a specific prescription to turn people back into repentance. Who is Lamentations 2, 14? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. Whose job was it to teach the people about the Word of God so they knew right from wrong? When the priests of God were not behaving in the way that they should, they'd actually muddied the spring instead of creating a distinction between what was holy and what was common. God would often send a prophet with a very specific message. You see this all throughout the Word. You can even see it in history during the revivals that we've seen. He sends a prophet to try to restore people back to the one true God, to to try to restore their minds to the Word of God, their deeds and their hearts to Him. But when both the priests and the prophets fail... The nation is destined for captivity. Somebody say destined. 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 There is no other route that is left. Let's look at Jeremiah 2.8. Jeremiah 2.8. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. Wow. When the priests don't ask, inquire of the Lord. When the priests don't inquire of the written word, God sees it as rebellion. They're doing whatever they want. Should not the priests have asked the Lord? Should not the priests have known what was written? They let Israel down. They let David down in this scenario. You see, we we always look at David and we're like, man, David did something bad here. But it started somewhere else. It started with the priesthood. He inquired of them. And yet they did not give them the Lord's words. This is still going on in epic fashion all around us. Priests. People leading homes, not inquiring of the Word of God and letting everything around them go to death because they are not inquiring of the life of God written in the Word. Let's do Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. Matthew 23, 2 and 3 says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You see that is only a problem of hypocrisy. But it's not. Their office is ordained, but those who are ordained seem to have failed in their duty. Not only were they not doing it, they weren't teaching what they were actually ordained for. That is 
all too often the truth both then and now. People have raised up for themselves teachers who tickle their itching ears. You can get upset with what's happening at any given church, but that church would not exist if the people did not want it and were not paying for it. Let's consider 1 Timothy 1, 4-7 through together. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's word, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they read, do not know... What read that for me one more time. They want to be what? They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Since we are a people group that by God's gracious mystery have been grafted in as a priesthood of the Most High God, Paul is addressing men that have received that revelation and are misusing it. We have become a grafted in nation of priests and you are repeatedly referred to as priests in the Newer Testament. Do you have any idea what you're talking about? that you so confidently affirm. See, we're no longer talking about Pharisees. We're no longer talking about Sadducees. We're talking about men and women like you that are called to be priests of the Most High God. Do you have an adequate knowledge of the Word of God that is showing up in your deeds? Are you obsessed with meaningless controversies? The goal was that it would promote the kind of faith and love that carried on the work of Christ. When we're speaking about concepts like this, opinions that seem to dominate how we view the Word, how we dominate how we view a situation, whether we have unity, whether we've unified with somebody who shares the same opinion, or our enthusiasm about a particular subject, give us validation. Saints, we want to tell you tonight that is holistically wrong. Priests are required to live by the written Word and nothing else. Every other thing that you could possibly derive affirmation from a straw that is waiting to be burned up. We want to find you clothed in purple and blue with kingly garments, ready to meet your king, operating as the priest you were called to be, not as one who is naked entering into the kingdom of God, but just barely escaping the flames. Now, we're going after this pretty hard, and you can tell. That's because for a few decades now, I've had the responsibility to raise up pastors. And... A calling can be there. Enthusiasm can be there. Unity can be there among brothers. But at the end of the day, when you become responsible for guiding other households' lives, your opinions have got to fade to the background. Your enthusiasm about your pet doctrines and projects, they have to fade to the background. 100% of the time, the reason that churches do not do well is their pastor does not adequately know the word. It's it's true 100% of the time. And those who wish to be ordained always want to be ordained on the basis of their calling. Well, you'll get people hurt because you are in fact called, but you do not have any idea what you're doing. Calling is not enough. That's straw. It's wood. It's stubble. Your calling is only as good as it drives you to the Word 
so that you rightly handle the Word. Because men's lives, ask Uzzah, men's lives depend on what you teach. So it's not your opinions anymore. Speaking of... Linton, we get verse 9 and 10 for us on that topic. Good. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to stay the ark because the ox stumbled, the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Oh, you know, a huge problem, like what Eric was just sharing, is that we don't know the word well enough. Another huge problem is that we find something that we want to do, or there's something before us that we want so bad, and instead of going to Scripture first and foremost and seeing what the Scripture says about a subject, we go into the Scripture, find out what we want, and then find Scriptures that support what our selfish desires want. That is another huge problem, and I see that everywhere. I hear it when people come up and they're like, hey, I'm deciding to do this, I want to go do that. And then, well, what does the Word say? Have you gotten a Word? Yes. And they point to a Scripture that affirms Everything that their simple desire wants to get. I want to show you an example of this because I'm sure, look, you know that Uzzah died, right? But why was it put on a cart in the first place? Could it be that they were looking back into Scripture and they're like, well, look, the Scripture says it was put on an ark or it was put on a cart, so we might be able to do it too. Somebody read 1 Samuel 5, 6. We're going to build a little story here to help you understand why it was put on a cart. <laughs> the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Mm. Is it possible that they were looking backwards, wanting to put this on a cart because, you know, the commands are so burdensome that I need to set it on this cart? And they were looking back and found a scripture that says it was put on a cart and they justified what they wanted out of it. Is it possible they did that? You see, they consulted the Levites, but the Levites did not inquire of God and see what the written word says. Now, this is a story in 1 Samuel about the ark being captured, going to a Philistine land, and then they were afflicted with tumors. The Philistines had captured the ark during Israel's unfaithfulness. They set the ark in front of Dagon, and the Lord decimated Dagon. Great story. He fell over, his head fell off, his hands fell off. The presence of the ark in Ashdod also caused an effect on the people. The word translated tumor is more correctly ophil. Let's put that on the screen for everybody. Yep, that's exactly what it is. It's a hemorrhoid. I'd like to show it to you in Greek, just because we can. And was oppressive the hand of the Lord against the Ashdodites, and he tormented the Ashdodites, and he struck them in their buttocks. That's right, Forrest Gump. They got shot in the buttocks. The one from Ashdod and their borders. In case you think it's trickery with Greek, let's look at the Hebrew. The Masoretic says, And the hand of the Lord became heavy upon the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them, and he smote them with hemorrhoids. Now, why do we always talk about reading the whole context of a passage? I think if the Israelites would have read this and saw the whole context, they would have said, Hey, not a good idea to put it on a cart, right? Everywhere that the ark went, 
caused a response in the city. Look at 1 Samuel 5, 9. It's but coming. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, in an outbreak with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Wow. So the Greek here again speaks about their buttocks as the place that they were afflicted. He's killing us! Now, this is humorous as all get out, but it's also serious. It, re- it really happened. Can you imagine how terrified, afraid, and panicked they became? Absolutely. We're about to see their solution that is coming up. Now, I know no one in this room has ever been afraid, panicked, or terrified. Or had their wife be afraid, panicked, or terrified. And then came up with a solution out of that fear. See, but they are drawing upon a story that is relatively recent in their nation's history that was birthed out of fear and disobedience, and they're going to use it as a pretext for what they do. Listen, what's the Hebrew of this passage said? The Hebrew says, And it was after they had brought it around that the hand of the Lord was upon the city with a great panic, and he smote the people of the city, both young and old, and hemorrhoids broke out in their hidden parts. Oh, wow. oh. Not even particularly external hemorrhoids. Look, this happened in five Philistine cities. What we have here is you can see Ashdod, you can see Ashkelon, you can see Gaza, Gath, Ekron, those five cities. And what is really interesting is they come up with a solution. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, a two-fold solution is proposed. We want to cover the first step in their two-step solution. We're just going to put it in Hebrew on the screen for you. This is from the Masoretic text. And you shall make the images of your hemorrhoids. <laughs> we Composed teach you the illusion of the first time. I'm, I'm just asking, who was the model for this process? How exactly did that work? And the images of your mice who destroyed the land, and you shall give honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from upon you, and from upon your God, and from upon your land. Ravaged. Which takes us to the second step in their solution. And this is where it gets important. This comes from 1 Samuel 6 and verse 8. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the golden objects (laughs) you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way. So the Philistines sent the ark away, and this is what happened. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death. See, this is what results after this cart reaches Israel. Man, context is such an important thing. We're still in chapter 6, just a few verses down, and 19 is where it picks up. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with. 
Man, men's perceptions of what a heavy blow were very interesting. They were warned in advance. And the man of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. To whom will the ark go up from here? Man, they're awestruck by what happens. And they're looking, what, what should I do? To the law and to the testimony. That is the solution to almost every one of these problems. How is it that the Levites and priests in David's day were not warned by the law's instructions on handling the ark or the context of the passage they, they used as a pretext for their actions? Notice where the ark goes, though. That's what's important. In verse 21, then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. Apparently, the Philistines didn't want it because it was causing a real pain. And the people of Beth Shemesh, who were Israelites, didn't want it because they touched it and people died when they looked inside of it. So they sent it to Kiriath-Jerim and it stays there for almost a hundred years. Now, this is the place that they're bringing it from to Jerusalem. Yeah. How about that? Well, you know, I really thought we should put the ark on a cart. And I did look in the Word, and I found out that's how it got to Kiriathurium in the first place. So we'll put it on an ark again, and the Word says we can do it. It worked out okay for Kiriathurium. Yes, but it didn't work out well for Beth Shemesh. It certainly didn't work out well for the five Philistine cities. Nope. See, the word mishandled, the word segmented, the word taken out of its broadest context and only exegeted in a singular verse can really cause pain for you in your inmost places. So how is it that the Levites and the priests in David's day were not warned by the law's instruction on handling the ark? How is it that the Levites and the priests in David's day were not warned by the prophet's record of the effects of doing this wrong? Surely hemorrhoids would have made a funny, memorable story with their kids to tell. I mean, you would think that would be the kind of thing somebody would remember. It has to be that they did not consult the written word of God and it was so far from their actual thoughts that they only consulted it to find out that they could do what they already wanted to do. It's a really good thing nobody in this room has done anything like that. Mm. Hey, how about verse 11 and 12 through 13? Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broke out against us. And to this day, that place is called Perez. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with them in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Hittite. Get 14 for me, too. remains with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. You see, when Uzzah is struck dead, David gets angry. doesn't say he got angry with God, but it says that he was angry. It also says he was afraid. Do you want to know something about that? When you are angry or fearful because of the circumstances you are facing, it is important to turn to the written word of God. It's imperative. Think about Psalm 119.50. And, and guess who wrote Psalm 119.50? 
David did. He wrote, My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Oh, come on now. You see, David here is angry. David here is fearful. But he is also being preserved by the written Word of God that has promised him something personally. When we get to chapter 15, you're going to see that it is David who searches the written Word. And he teaches the priests the prescribed way. He's the one that reminds them. He returned to the written Word that was his life. You see... What happens when we're put in these circumstances because something that we did wrong, it causes us to be angry for a little bit. Because, like, what is going on? It causes us to be afraid. Lord, what happened? Are you leaving me now? The answer is turning back to the written Word of God, not running away from it. Turning back to the written Word of God. As we get into 14, the chronicler seems to want you to know that during these difficulties, the Lord was still preserving His promise to David. He is still preserving his promise, even though there's a huge failure from not consulting the written word. This reminds us of Psalm 138.8. And guess what? This is also written by David. Come on. These psalms are so great, aren't they? Yes. How did David get these? Because he lived it out. He said in Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He will fulfill. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. You see, David did not abandon the works of his hands because he searched the written word. As we get into the 14th chapter, remember the chronicler's perspective. He's just recorded a grievous error and he goes straight into David's victories. There's a reason for that. Consider that. Linton, read 1 and 2 verse 14 for me. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs, stone masons, and carpenters to build a palace for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Come on. Come on, saints. It's 840. It's a Monday. But you're a holiness or die trying kind of people. Yeah. You're the kind of people that want to win. Yeah. Did you hear what he said? Exalted for the sake of his people Israel. That should stir something up inside some of you. Why is he exalted? For the sake of Israel. A Gentile kingdom is sending materials to help David, and it was a reminder that the Lord was exalting him, but the purpose was always for the sake of his people. Romans 15 27 speaks about this. Israel is destined to be perfected by God. This does not take place by redefining Israel's purpose. Or reinterpreting Israel's purpose. It comes by refining His people into the bride they were always intended to be. We're going to hand out a few scriptures. Who's ready to take some? Exodus 19, 3-6. Gabriel Arias. 2 Samuel 7, 21-24. Steve Thomas. Psalm 105, 1-10. Asad. Luke 1, 54-55. Timo. Romans 11, 1 through 2. Michael. Ben, you get Romans 8, 28 through 30. Tisdale, Revelation 22, 16. And then we'll pick back up from there. When you're ready, you can read. Who's got Exodus 19? Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Moses went up to the mountains to, Moses went up the mountains to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you say. Hold there for a second. Who are we speaking about? 
the Israelites, specifically the house of Jacob. There is no way to reinterpret that. Not now, not before, not later. This was given to a specific people group. And years later, God says through the chronicler, the reason that God exalted David was for this people group. Come on. Now let's finish it. Who is you? Keep going. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Who is you? These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Okay. It doesn't matter what kind of revelation you think you have. You cannot erase the specific identifiers in this promise. It was a mystery that any of you would have any part in any of this. The written word. Somebody say written. Written. Clearly identifies the one nation on earth that this statement is true of. Israel. God is exalting David for the sake of his people, Israel. The son of David, Jesus, is exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. It was a mystery that anybody else would be benefited by. Now we're going to read 2 Samuel 7, 21-24. But remember, this is written in 2 Samuel as God's promise to David exalted for the sake of Israel. Alright, who's got it? 2 Samuel 7, 21-24. For the sake of your word. For the sake of your what? Word. For the sake of your word. And according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself? Wait, who is like your people Israel, the multiple nations? The nation that will be redefined later? The one nation that God redeemed. Keep going. And to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. Wait, you mean not just 2,000 years? No, no. no forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. Mm. For the sake of your word, the written word of God makes specific promises to a very specific nation. Amen. God makes these promises for the sake of his word. And it says there is no other nation like Israel, the one nation on earth that God redeems as a people for himself. The Peshat written declaration is, you have established your people Israel as your very own forever. Nothing will ever render this true statement untrue. Who's got Psalm 105? Hey, who, who got that? Psalm 105? Assad, that's perfect. Read it like the Lion King. We've got ten verses that are worth just hearing. This kind of scripture is, is worthy of a man like Assad reading it. Psalm 105, 1-10. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. 
Make known among the nations what he has done. Make it known. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. Over the sentence of Abraham's servant. What? Who? Come on. Who? Come on. Abraham. 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 Oh, sons of Jacob, his chosen one. What did he call the sons of Jacob? He never said that to any other nation. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. Forever. Keep going. The word he commanded for a thousand generations. Oh, come on now. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Come on. Wow. Some, say this with me. Forever. Forever. That's not an ambiguous statement. It's an emphatic statement. One that cannot be renegotiated in his, in his written words. David is being exalted because of God's love for his chosen people, Israel. A covenant that he made that lasts forever. forever. The Jewish people are, are loved on account of the patriarchs. And an individual's reckoning with God does not change the fact that that nation is destined for greatness. The covenant made with the patriarchs cannot be abrogated. It doesn't go away. It doesn't get redefined. They are written in his word. They are certain the people will never be able to redefine what God has defined as permanent and everlasting. Yeah. Let's take a look at Luke 1 together. Luke 1, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Wow, this is Mother Mary speaking about the birth of Jesus. <laughs> Both Jesus and David are exalted for the sake of God's people, Israel. Amen. Amen. How easy is it to read about Jesus in the Newer Testament and think He's exalted for all of the Gentiles that are going to come into faith in Him. That is not what His primary mission was. He was exalted for His own people. Mm. Who's got Romans 11, 1 through 2? I asked them, did God reject His people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he forgave. I want you to consider this for a minute. Twice in this passage, Paul is still referring to Israel, the physical nation, as his people. Because it never changed. Just nope. like it didn't change when Mary made her pronouncement. Israel is, was, and always will be God's people. Amen. Your mysterious inclusion does not change that reality. In verse 2, he says, God did not reject His people whom He... What's that word? If we could go back and explain this to Calvin, then we wouldn't have so many uh, arcs on carts. Israel is foreknown. He declared their existence in advance to Abraham. He called them into being through Isaac, the promised son. He will justify them just like their forefather, Jacob. And He will glorify them like He did Joseph, or more specifically, Jesus. That's good. Let's read Romans 8, 
through 30, and I want you to consider for a moment that he is not talking to you. Amen. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew... Now hold! Who did he foreknow? Israel! He said it in the same letter! He said it in chapter 11, verse 2. He expected you to know it when you were reading chapter 8. Because it had already been said. Israel is the foreknown nation. The one, the only foreknown nation. Now read what he is saying about Israel now. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I'm just curious, who were Jesus' brothers? Israel. Israel. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. His entire point is the promise of God has not failed. His entire point is that, that the promise still remains. Incidentally, that is also the point of the entire book of Chronicles. Come on now. Israel is the one nation on earth that God has foreknown. They are destined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. God exalted David for the sake of His people. And God exalted Jesus Christ for the sake of His people, Israel. Amen. It was a mystery that you could catch a ride with them, but never without them. Where is Revelation 22, verse 16? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So even at the end of the book, he wants the churches, the churches, the ones that are being referenced are in Turkey in the greater body of the ecclesia in the world that are a mix of Gentiles and Jews. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He is the king of the universe. He is the son of David. And he has always been exalted for the sake of Israel. And he wanted you, he wanted me to know that and remember it. The Chronicle is writing from a vantage point that is post-captivity and is reminding them who is them, the Israelites, those that have survived the captivity, that the divinic dynasty is for the sake of God's people Israel. And that the Gentile attestation to the greatness of the Davidic dynasty is affirmation. You remember where he's sending gifts and material goods. That's because they recognize something of God is happening. It is affirmation of the promise to the Israeli people. Not a replacement to the promise. Not a redefinement. It is affirmation to it and they are being refined through it. Now we're going to read for a spell. And we're going to do that because as we get to the end of the 14th chapter, we're going to summarize it for you. We're going to go through some points that are your takeaways. So pick up in verse 3 and take us through 17. In Jerusalem, David took more wives and became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemur, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ippar, Elishua. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. 
But David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of God, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, I will hand them over to you. So David and his men went up to Belperazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, God has broken out against my enemies by my hand. So that place was called Baal-perazim. Philistines had abandoned their gods there, and David gave orders to burn them in the fire. Yeah. Once more, the Philistines raided the valley. So David inquired of God again. Wait, say that last part again. So David inquired of God again. Wow. Keep going. And God answered them. Do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in the front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move out to battle, because that will mean God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army all the way from Gibeon to Gizri. So David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made all the nations fear him. Come on. Wow. Yeah. You see, now that we've read the 14th <laughs> chapter, I want to draw your mind to attention to some incredible things. All right? We just left a failure in Israel. They're trying to bring up the ark. David is angry. Uh, David's fearful. But what happens? Gentiles start to support David. He doesn't stay there in his anger. He doesn't stay there in his fear. And instead, he goes to war. He goes out and fights. I want to read to you one of the first concepts of chapter 14. It's in verse 2. It says that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. He knew this. But it ends with, in verse 17, so David's fame spread throughout every land and the Lord made all nations fear him. You see, the God of Israel loves the people of Israel. You can't take that away. And no matter what failure is there... He still always is with his people. He exalts David for their sake and for the sake of his word. Amen. I know we've been preaching about Israel for a little while now. Some of you are looking at us like, yeah, I I already know that. But let me tell you you how this relates to you, all right? Let me tell you something. You will not receive your salvation until you receive the Israeli people receiving their king. You will both receive it at the same time, and it will be a marriage between you and your king along with them and their king. Come on, am I talking to anybody tonight? Do you want to be married to the king? You're going to have to see them married to the king too. David's exaltation for the sake of his people caused every nation to fear him. Can you think of a few passages that prophesy about Jesus the same thing? Like Psalm 2. This is true of Jesus as well. Every nation will fear them. But there's a few practical takeaways for your application out of chapter 14 that Judah would like to share with you. Are you ready for your practical application? From David's response to what happened, as horrible as it was, what he does. We're going to glean something from it. Are you ready? Ready. David goes to work building with materials brought to him by the Gentile king. He goes about constructing in Jerusalem and building the city of God. David also goes and sees sons born of the womb. So you've got work and you've got womb. David's family grows. See, so he has additional wives that are added, but also sons that are born during this time frame between the chapters. 
Amnon, Kilab, Absalom, Adonijah, Sephatiah, Ithrian, Solomon, Nathan. Yeah. And we have others that are mentioned. Did my very best with that. So what does David do when he's at a horrific event where he messed up, the priest messed up, everybody messed up? The man goes to work and goes to the womb. Oh, yeah. Hey guys, that's that's just that's good right there. You don't know what else to do. Get to work and then get home to your wife. Isaiah 49, 18. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather to you and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as an ornament and you will put them on like a bride. Do you know how your temporary failures are overcome? Your long-term success, your real ministry is in building and building with your family. Get to work! And get to the fruit of the womb. This is good advice any way that you look at it. But that's not where it stops. The third one is get to war. Where these battles take place is called the Valley of Rephaim. The Valley of the Giants, according to New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Second Samuel 5.18 in the Greek text calls this valley the Valley of the Titans or Giants. David didn't pick small battles. He went after the big ones. And there's a reason that this is so amazing. If you get to work doing what you know God has told you to do, if you get to the womb building the family that is your first responsibility, and then you go to war with the giants that are in your life, Something else happens. Amen. The place is called Baal Perazim, meaning the Lord of breakthroughs. God will meet you in the middle of that battle. And He doesn't just meet you in the middle of that battle. He does something else. Look at the commentary on this. The sound in the top of the mulberry trees, or in our translation, balsam trees. The Jews have been teaching their children for thousands of years. This was the angels. Moving in the trees. Heaven coming to fight the battles on earth. Because we have a man who got to work. A man who was building a family through the womb. A man who went to war with giants. And God came to break through in his life. That takes us to the 15th chapter. As we move on, remember, the chronicler wanted you to know after that horrific event... That God was still with David. That he was building. That his household was increasing. That he was going to war and God was delivering him. That ought to give you hope, men of God. Your work, your womb, your war. Those are all God-ordained tasks. And when you don't know what else to do, go back to the things that he originally showed you. We put this on a slide for you so that you cannot miss it. David has experienced setbacks, but the chronicler in between the setback and the solution includes a war plan that will work for everyone. He goes to work building with the materials that God had brought him. He sees sons born from the womb. He goes to war with the enemies of Israel. And then he turns to the Word of God to fix his problems. That's solid advice for you. Ladies, you want your husband to do this. It may sound salacious to you. 
But that's because you don't understand the Word of God. What you are doing with your children is how the kingdom advances. It's not your next street evangelism event. It is the disciples that came from the womb in your house. And if you're single and you can't go to the womb, then you just double up on the, on the fourth one. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Still got three to work with. Let's pick up in 15.1, Mr. Linton. After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched the tent for it. Get two for us as well. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. Now where did David learn that the Lord chose only the Levites to carry the ark? Word. The word. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't from the latest fad in charismatic conferences. It wasn't from the latest article in Charisma magazine. Or it wasn't the carnal church circuit. It was the written word. Amen. When you have, now when you have setbacks and you say that you are going to seek the face of the Lord, how do you actually go about doing it? Are you on the phone? Are you in counsel with your peers? Do you Google your problem? Because the written Word of God is the only revealed, only flawless, only trustworthy source that there is. Saints, prayer is good. Worship is good. But prayer, worship, and the Word of God is great. That is where we find what we need. Let's take a look at a couple passages together. Nick, will you get John 16, 13 through 15 for me? Nick Aragina. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Saints, the Scripture came into being by the breath of God, by His Spirit at work manifesting in men's lives. The Word and the Spirit will never be in contradiction. If there is a contradiction, the problem is with you, not with the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit of truth guides you into the truth of the written Word. He does not speak on His own, but only what He hears from the Father. He takes from Jesus the living, breathing, embodied Word of God and makes it known to you. All that the Father has, or all that the Son has, because they're one in what they share. This is what the Spirit of truth draws from when He speaks to us. Somebody tell me prayer is good. Prayer is good. The Word is better. The Word is better. Prayer in the Word is best. Prayer in the Word is best. I'm tired of hearing from people, I'm going to pray and just seek the face of God. You can't know what the face of God is through prayer alone. You have to have the Word. You have to. Prayer and the Word together will yield for you a correct understanding of God's will. James 1.18, did we hand that out? No. James 1.18 says He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Come on. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The spirit and the word always work in conjunction. 
That's yeah. true from the moment of your birth to the moment of your glorification. Let's read from verse 3 all the way down to 13. David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to, to the place he had prepared for it. He called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites mm. from the descendants of Kohath, Uriel, the leader, and 120 relatives. From the descendants of Merah, Asiah, the leader, and 220 relatives. From the descendants of Gershom, Joel, the leader, and 130 relatives. From the descendants of Eli Zaphon, Shemaiah, and Shemaiah, the leader, and 200 relatives. From the descendants of Hebron, Eliel, the leader, and 80 relatives. From the descendants of Uziel, Amenadab, the leader, and 112 relatives. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, Amenadab, the Levites. Hold for just a second. Before he reads verse 12, consider that this 800 and some odd people that he's assembled, they're all already supposed to know what he's going to say. Mm-hmm. They're, they are the protectors of, of what is truth in this regard. The revealed written word. And then tell me how much you love David for understanding what he's about to say from the word when the men entrusted with it did not. He said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical family. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you... Whoa! It was because... You... The Levites did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of Him about how to do it in a prescribed way. He both says it's because of you... But he also says, we. It was first their responsibility, but he became as guilty as they did when he participated in it with them. And he says, we did not inquire of him on how to do it in the prescribed way. Do you see prayer and the word in conjunction there? There is a prescribed way. Where was it prescribed? In the the written word of God. The answer is already there. You don't have to consult anything else because it was already written in the Word of God. That means no prophet, no priest, no pulpit can advocate for a way other than the revealed, prescribed way of God. Oh, that's good. That's why in this church we say, hey, I heard what you say, but what does the Word say? That's why we do that in this church. David is calling the priesthood back to the prescribed way and taking personal responsibility as well. Hey, Pastor, what does Psalm 147, verse 19 through 20 say? He revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. See, at the time, they were the only nation on earth to have the revealed word of God. Mm. They are, all the way up through now, the custodians of the Word of God. Romans 3, 1 through 2 says exactly that. The priesthood's error was grievous, but it didn't absolve David of his personal responsibility. In our time, errors abound, but it does not resolve you of your personal responsibility. 
Perhaps every person in this room should consider what Psalm 119 says. Let's read verse 66 through 68 together. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. The basic premise that will save your life when you have an incident, when you realize, and everyone does, your way of life, your actions, and the decisions that you have made were not in alignment with His Word. It's to start out by saying, you are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. You will never hear from the Lord with an insolent attitude. If you humble yourself before Him and say, teach me. Lord, you brought this affliction into my life for a reason. And you go back to the work God has called you to. You go back to the womb that God has called you to and the war that you're called to. Out of His very Word, He will speak to you the answer to your situation. See, we have the chance to recover just like David and come out stronger on the other side of it. Now, we're going to wrap this up in the next 20 minutes, just like we always do. I want you to, to, to think for a second, though. It is a very easy thing to have your own idea, and then like a lawyer consulting his legal uh, pretext, go and see if you can support your idea. This is what happens when you exalt prayer above the Word. Because you don't know the difference between your thoughts and desires and what the Word actually says. They have to work in conjunction together. What we need to be doing is reading the Word and praying that the Spirit opens our mind to what it says. Not asking for what we should do and then seeing if we can justify it in the Word. Mm -hmm. That leads you to error. You could justify putting the ark on a cart and having a successful move because for Kiriath Jiriam it worked out okay. But if you looked at the whole counsel of the Word of God, you would see he never intended that. He destroyed five Philistine cities and the first Israelite city that he came to because they did not do it right. And Kiriath Jiriam is an anomaly. They were the recipient of something. You have to be careful. Most of the error that floats around our body is because you walked in with a predetermined framework and despite our best efforts to shake it up, you stand obstinately and act as if God did not put us here to instruct you. The Word of God did not originate with you. And you have got to see reason, all of you. Your charismatic experiences, the things that you have encountered outside of this ministry, they are not secondary. I mean, they are secondary to what God brought you here to learn. After you have mastered what we are teaching you, then we'll consider all of the things that you think you can improve on what we're teaching you. But I'm not ashamed to say for 30 years I've been doing this and have a pretty good track record. I promise you I haven't misunderstood Israel's destiny. I promise you that. You would do well to consider strongly what we're saying. It is our fourth message on this topic and we did not plan to coordinate our Sunday and Wednesday messages with Chronicles. It just so happens that if you do this prayerfully, looking at the Word, He will co-witness it. Come on now. 
Yeah. Let's pick back up in verse 14 through 16. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with we the poles on their the shoulders, as Moses had commanded them in accordance with the word of the Lord. Man, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. Man, they're returning to the written word. Read verse 16. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs. Joyful. Yeah! Lyres, harps, and cymbals. Man, they obeyed the written word of the Lord, and that brought joyful songs. You see, when the word is ignored, it always brings death. And every decision you make... In every situation you're in, every conversation with your spouse, your brother, everything, when the word is ignored or set to second or set aside, it always brings death. But when the word is honored, man, it brings life. Yeah. It brings life. It may seem like a crucifixion because we're dealing with some sinful flesh, but it'll always result in a resurrection of your soul and your spirit because the word brings life. What is Deuteronomy 30? We're going to hand these out. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. Get it? John 5, 25. Get it? Through 27 on that one. 26. John 10, 10. Abambola, get it? 1 John 5, 12. Brandon. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Peyton Parsons. Didn't raise your hand, but you got volunteer. John 15, 10 through 11. Marlet. Saints, these are worth considering and weighing out. We're going to pick up a pace, so stay with us. As soon as you get it, start to read. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, these commands. Now choose life. Listen to his voice in the commands and you will have life. Hold fast and you will have life. For the Lord is your life through his word. Come on. What does John 5, 25 say? I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. The Son is the Word of God. And His words were recorded. His voice is the written Word of God and the Spirit of truth co-witnessing His will in your life. John 10.10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy the living, breathing Word of God came that we might have life. Not consulting the Word as our sole source of illumination will steal from you. It will kill you and it will destroy whatever legacy you had remaining. Wow. Consulting the Word of God will not only give you life, but give you real, full, abundant life. Yeah. It's got First John 5.12 He who has the Son has life. He who has the Son, the living Word of God, has life. He who does not have the Word of God doesn't have the Son. Life is found in the personage of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Amen. 
So saying Jesus told me doesn't make any sense unless it was the word of God as well. Amen. First John one one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Psalm 33.6 and Colossians, any number of places tell us that the Word of God is what created everything that we have. The book of Genesis opens with God created the heavens and the earth. The Word and God, God and the Word, are inseparable from each other. True joy comes from hating what is evil and loving what is righteous as defined by the Word of God. You can see Psalm 45, 7 for that. Who had John 15, 10? If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's command, I remain in His love. I have told these, so my joy may be in you, and that, uh, and that your joy may be complete. Saints, remaining in the love of God that is His Word is life. It is the answer to any and every situation, wherever you're at, in your home, in your workplace, in the world around you. His Word is true. Remain in His Word and you will find life. Can somebody find some hope in that? We're looking around at a dark and desperate world. But remaining in His Word, remaining in His love will produce life. It is a certainty. Linton, will you pick up in 17 and read all the way through 21 for us? Here's how you do that, Linton. Read the first three words of 17. So the Levites. Amen. Now read the last part of 22. Uh, Because he was still blessed. Woo! The men listed here, we've got something to say about. Tell us, Justin. I want to mention three of those men. In verse 19, to spare some details of reading a lot of Hebrew names. In verse 19, mentions three musicians. We see He-Man, Asaph, and Etan. He-Man, Asaph, and Etan. Man, those guys, if you search out the Psalms, you will find that they were prolific songwriters. And are responsible for some of the most beautiful passages eternally recorded in the Word of God. Those three men. So that begs the question. What would have happened if the family of God did not teshuva and consult the Word of God? What would have happened if David didn't repent and consult the Word of God? They wouldn't have been appointed. I love that the king of Israel brought the priesthood of Israel to repentance because it's going to happen again! When we turn to the written Word, it benefits our families in an eternal proportion. Yes. These men benefit us for eternity because of the repentance that happened. How did you find your calling and function? Other men who are faithful to consult the written word helped you by encouraging you to consult the word. When we consult the word, everyone around us learns from our mistakes and they start consulting the word. And that leaves fruit that that builds up for eternity. That's not our own idea. That comes from Psalm 16, 11. You have made known to me 
the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. How were the pathways of life made known? The Word. The product of knowing is what fills us with joy. Because knowing the path marked by the Word is something that is pleasant throughout all of your generations. Amen. All right, Linton, we're on the clock. You going to finish this out, man, 23 through 27. Yes. Barakai and Elkanah were to be doorkeepers of the ark. Shebaniah and Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Elijah, the priests, were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. So David and the elders of Israel, Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Yes. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Amen. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Whew. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen. Fine linen. were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. And as were the singers and Keniah, Keniah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. So they saints. also wore a linen ephod. We see them now repeating the exact same process, except in obedience to the Word of God. Do you notice some changes? We have men that have found their function and calling. We have a perfect sacrifice being offered as they go. And David and the Levites are clothed in linen garments. And anybody tell me what that represents? They are clothed in righteous acts. There is no mention of these men wearing linen in the first time they brought up the ark. When they decided to consult the written word of God, they were clothed in righteousness. We will always have to cover up with fig leaves when we do not consult the word. No matter what saying you use or feeling you conjure up, without the word of God, you're never clothed in righteousness. But when you have it, saints, he takes you regardless of your past sins and clothes you in his holiness. If we turn to the true light, the true life that is in the word, it will be a garment of righteousness over us forever. I really love verse 26. He says, God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark. Amen. Aren't you glad that when you have failed to consult the Word of God, He still helps you when you do consult the Word of God? Yes. I can tell you as a father many times because I'm a sinful slug. When my kids didn't do what I told them to do, and then they came back and it's failed, I was like, I told you the first time you didn't listen. You can live in it. You know? You you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. All kind of things that don't come from the Word. We have a loving Father. When you come to Him in the Word, He will wrap an arm around you and shade you. He will feed you the next bite. And He will lead you into those linen garments. Amen. In Second Samuel and in Chronicles, in both accounts, they were not dressed in linen garments, or at least it's not described, until after they consulted the Word. And you won't be either. There's a reason for that. 1 Corinthians 3, Jeremiah 23, verses 28 through 29, they tell you what happens. When you do things out of your own self-direction, no matter how good intention, they are burned up. They are not righteous deeds that clothe the bride of Christ. They do not last into eternity. 
But when you consult the Word and the Word births it, you will wear that forever and the Lord will help you do it. That's good news, saints. Let's finish out our chapter with reading verse 28 through 29. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sound of ram's horns and trumpets, and of cymbals, and the playing of lives and harps. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Mm. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Now as my brothers take off and bring this thing to a close, because we have six minutes, you do not want to be Michael. Mm -mm. You remember when we said, you go to work, you go to the womb, you go to war, and you go to the Word? Her womb is closed forever after this. God would not perpetuate this woman's progenitory because of this attitude. You see, while all the nation of Israel has repented, they've turned back to the written Word of God, they're rejoicing, they're dancing. Michael despised David in her heart because she did not rely on the Word. But you know what she chose to rely on instead? Her corrupt feelings, Mm. her emotions, her own desires. You know, if only she had read Proverbs 4, 7 through 9. It says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Oh, Jesus, all you have. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. I have found that so many of the problems in our lives, in my life, and in many of our lives here, it's because we choose to elevate our feelings and our emotions over what the written Word of God says. In our circumstances, in our trials, in our placements of everywhere we are at, we are making an idol. We are committing idolatry by setting our emotions over what the written Word of God says. We are choosing to serve that. And instead of, it's so easy. It's so easy to go to, you have it in your lap. It's so easy to go right there and look into what the eternal, the supreme, the sufficient Word of God says for you. We choose to do that because we don't trust it. Or we want to serve that idol. Or we want to feel something. I don't know. We choose to serve those emotions instead of standing on what God has all Ready, said. Do uh, do you have three minutes for some condensed truth? Oh, yes. yes. I didn't plan to do this Sunday, and I didn't plan to do it today. It's not in our notes. The problem is, is I'm staring at it all around us. These sayings that are in our church, you know what's in the bottom right-hand corner of each one? We didn't come up with the saying and then look to the Scripture to see if we could justify it. Do you know what each of these are? They're a scripture that taught us something that had become a permanent fixture in our lives. That's beautiful. When you see something like few in number, one in purpose, that was birthed right out of the Word. Now, there is more black space up there than there are signs in there. You know what the black space between those signs is? It's all the time that we wasted. It's all the things that were burned up This represents 30 years worth of work. 
And that's all we have to show for it. I'm really proud of what we have. It is amazing. It's trustworthy. You can build on it. But all the blank space represents to me every time that I had a good idea and we worked at it, maybe even for years, because it seemed noble. I had a consensus. Nobody raised any objections. But it was not burst out of the written word and so it's not even worthy to be mentioned today. It's the blank space on the walls. Let me ask you, If we decorated your house with what God had said to you out of His Word that has lasted from the time He said it until now and will last through your generations, how many walls would be left undecorated? This would be a good time for us to pray. Be a good time for us to dedicate ourselves to the written Word or else you will pass through the flames of the fiery test of God's Word and you will come out on the other side naked. You will have been busy doing what you liked, refusing what you disliked for one reason and one reason only. You didn't exalt the Word of God high enough in your personal life. The truth is is we should have thousands of these and your home should be decorated with yours. That's why we're talking to you about mezuzahs, family banners, things that will carry through the generation. And I don't want you to be naked in eternity. I have a singular closing thought as we begin to pray. 1 Corinthians 2.16 is probably the most bastardized scripture in all of the church world, where we have the mind of Christ. The vast majority of the people who use that scripture as a justification for their own wisdom, their own decisions, and own opinions, have the furthest thing from the mind of Christ. As a garland around your neck, as Proverbs 4 said, as a crown, as what is clothing you like righteous linen, the word of God is available to you. I know you. I know that for many of you, what he just said about these things all the way around the room, there's a big glaring, I don't have it at home. Mm -hmm. But what is available to you is the actual mind of Christ that comes from His written Word that causes you to see the world differently. You just have to stop accepting something less than that. And He's calling you to it now. He's staring you in the eye, brought you to this moment so that you might walk in the actual mind of Christ and know His will and be able to run in it with confidence before Him. He's calling out of you the kind of men and women that are able to bring the dwelling of God with men and the ark to Jerusalem. If you want that, we're asking you to stand with us and pray.